stop moralizing food, good food, bad food, unhealthy food, healthy food. I hear this so much. And I, I hear adults, I hear this in children. No, I'd rather you have a, a healthy snack before dinner. What are we actually saying? Welcome to Stigma is Curable, a new mini-series offered by The Promethean Project and Break the Chains, Find Your Flame. Our goal is to have conversations about certain stigmas in mental health and physical health and wellness. Each month, we will invite a guest speaker, an expert, to come and present to the community about a specific stigma and have a community conversation to break down the stigmas and create connection. This is our ninth installment of Stigma is Curable. It took me a second and then I realized I can just count the month number because we've done one each month. So ninth installment today. Um, we're calling this one Restriction Isn't a Lifestyle and our guest is Lacey McClure. And we're going to talk all about body image, eating disorders, um, diet culture, really getting into the nitty gritty on um, body image stuff. And and she has a presentation. We're going to have the presentation and then there'll be a question answer part. And at that part, anyone on Facebook Live, you can write any questions you have. I'll be monitoring them and I will ask them. And anyone on Zoom, I will have you write your questions into the chat feature and you can either read them when I call on you or I'll read them out to you. So. Um, really excited about this today. Really excited, everyone tuning in. And uh, I'm going to kick it over to Lacey. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. I'm just as excited to, to be here. So just confirming that you can see the presentation on your screen. Yep. It's good. Perfect. Awesome. Um, so like you said, we're going to talk about diet culture, fat phobia, and eating disorder stigma. Um, but I always like to introduce myself a little bit first so that you know who's talking to you. Um, so I am a licensed mental health clinician in Massachusetts. I worked in community-based mental health for about 10 years um, as a therapist and then up through leadership. Um, and then I've had my private practice um, since 2018. Right now is completely virtual. I specialize in treating eating disorders and anxiety. And I come from an intuitive eating and health at every size approach, which we will get to later. Um, and I'm really passionate about working with college students and young adults. I think there's a lot going on in life at that, at that time. Um, and practicing exposure work for eating disorders, panic disorder, uh, and OCD. But then in the spirit of uh, breaking the stigma, I figured it'd be important to do a reel about me as well. Um, so I am someone that has had anxiety since childhood. And one of the eating disorder diagnoses, which I will explain later, ARFID, um, 
but it had been added in the DSM-5, so it didn't exist when I was a kid. Um, but I'll tell you my example when we get there. Um, I had depression and self-injury in middle and high school. I currently see a therapist of my own. I love to read. I have an adventure cat named Benny. Um, and I'm currently on a year-long road trip across the country um, just exploring and um, doing remote therapy work. So getting started. So today, um, we're really going to cover what some of the stigmas are that exist. I think this is a topic that it talks about and maybe is gaining some traction. Um, but stigmas around eating disorders, around food, and around body size. All right, so we're going to start with eating disorders. So information about eating disorders first, just like a little bit of background. So past 50 years, the number of people with eating disorders has more than doubled. Out of those who are treated for eating disorders, only 35 are actually receiving care at a facility that specializes in eating disorder treatment. And then eating disorders are the most fatal of all psychiatric disorders, with anorexia being the most. All right. So I do want to talk through just to have a background on what the different eating disorders are, um, just to have just to kind of have that as, as a foundation before we, we jump into things. Um, so anorexia nervosa more commonly referred to as anorexia, is the restriction of energy intake. So that's food, calories, um, or anything else, sometimes fluids, things like that, um, is usually associated with a low body weight, a fear of weight gain, body dysmorphia, and sometimes purging. I think the most important thing that I like to stress when I'm doing conversations or talks about eating disorders is atypical anorexia. Because I think we have this view of what anorexia is. And then people miss other people that need that support. So I'm just going to give you an example. If somebody is restricting their, their, their calorie intake, their energy intake, um, and potentially lose a significant amount of weight, but are still considered in a larger body, they might not be seen as having anorexia or it's kind of like this, this view of what's the problem. And it's like, wait a minute, those individuals can still be, are malnourished. They might lose their period if they are a menstruating person. They might still have some of those, those you know, bone density loss, all of those things that come with a typical anorexia diagnosis. And so I really, really like to drive that home um, is that that doesn't make it any less dangerous or deadly. Um, and then bulimia nervosa, also more commonly referred to as bulimia, um, is binging and then compensatory behaviors to prevent weight gain. So that could be vomiting, that could be laxative use, um, things like that. Um, and then binge eating disorder. So eating more than someone is intending to, maybe faster, maybe, maybe more frequently, um, or when they're not hungry. And then frequently experiencing guilt afterwards. Um, okay, so now we're going to get to one that maybe some of you have heard of, maybe some of you haven't heard of, but this is ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. So kind of the background and then my example is it's a lack of interest or avoidance based on sensory characteristics that results in significant maybe weight loss, nutritional deficiencies, um, sometimes dependence on supplementation, 
or interference with psychosocial functioning. So when I was in third grade, I choked at dinner. It was really scary. So I stopped eating at school. I was fine with my parents. I was like, they know the Heimlich maneuver. I feel safe if I choke with them, I'm good. But at school, different story. And there were periods where I wouldn't even drink all day at school because I was scared to choke on that. And it kind of developed into this thing where then I would just avoid certain foods based on my idea of what was more likely to be choked on, whether that's something like steak or something like soup, right? Because there's all those textures in your mouth that you have to manage. Um, But again, nothing to do with body image, nothing to do with weight, but still an eating disorder that would have been treated with exposure therapy work. Um, and that's just one example. There are many, many examples of ARFID. Um, orthorexia is the next one. So that's an obsession with healthy foods. That's like compulsive checking, um, concerned with ingredients lists, labels, cutting out food groups, um, and inability to eat anything that people don't consider like quote unquote healthy or pure. And this is, I think I'll, I'll get the question of, well, isn't that just dieting or isn't that just whatever it's like no this is this is a dsm diagnosis which means it's impacting functioning it's it's impacting relationships it's impacting socialization and and those types of things and the level of distress is significantly high um and then again like i said there's so many nuances to still having an eating disorder and still need to be treated like you have an eating disorder even if someone doesn't meet all the criteria. So that's where we use the eating disorder, not otherwise specified diagnosis or the other specified feeding and eating disorders. Um, I do wanna note, there are a couple other eating disorders we're not going to talk about because they fall into a pretty different category. Um, But if you were to ever look through all of them, there are ones we're not gonna talk through today. Um, All right, so now that we have that, foundation. I want to talk a bit about stigmas around eating disorders. So I think there's so many. And so I kind of want to go through some, some research and then some just in general. Um, but eating disorders affect people of all ages, all genders, all races, all abilities. I think we have this view of it only affecting white teenage girls. And that's so far from the truth. Um, and so just going through some, some statistics here. So gay males represent only 5% of the total male population, um, but 42% of males with eating disorders identify as gay. Gay males are seven times more likely to report binging and 12 times more likely to report purging than than heterosexual males. Transgender college students were in another study um, significantly more likely than any other college students to report an eating disorder diagnosis within the year of the study. People of color are significantly less likely to receive help for their eating issues. Um, People of color who self-report eating and weight concerns were studied to have significantly be less likely than white patients to have been asked by a doctor about their eating symptoms or assessed or recommended care. Um, And so one research study, clinicians were presented with three different cases, um, a white woman, a Hispanic woman, and a black woman, and given the same exact disordered eating symptoms and asked to identify if the woman's eating behavior was problematic. 
And so in this study, they 44% of the clinicians identified the white woman's behavior as problematic, a little bit less, so 41% identified the Hispanic women's behaviors as problematic. And then a, a large difference, 17% uh, identified, only 17% identified the black women's behaviors as problematic, um, which then with not identifying it as problematic, we're also then less likely to recommend that the black women should receive professional help. Um, and then another piece, adults and older adults have eating disorders. Um, this can be triggered by so many things. It can be that they were in recovery and there was a trigger in their life, or it can be that they are triggered for the first time by those things. Anything such as pregnancy, menopause, emptiness, loss, grief, anything like that can trigger an eating disorder at any point in someone's life. All right, so I wanna talk a bit about stigmas around food, which we can also refer to as diet culture. Um, so diet culture is defined by Christy Harrison, who is an amazing dietitian, podcast host, author, et cetera, in the eating disorder world. Um, describes diet culture as a system of beliefs that worships thinness and equates it to health and moral virtue. Promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status. Demonizes certain ways of eating while elevating others. And oppresses people who don't match up with its supposed picture of health. I mean, how many times have we been present for someone talking about their diet that we didn't ask for them to talk about it with us, um, wherever that might be, um, or asking about things. Um, we see slogans about diet culture. We see these things printed on children's t-shirts, children's onesies about like, don't look at my thighs or things like that. And we think it's funny or on lunch boxes. And like, it's not that funny. Um, and then another huge piece of diet culture is that humans, but I think women identifying humans more so, have been taught that we can bond with each other um, over body hatred, over diet culture, right? Like we're grabbing a cupcake and we're talking, oh, I can't have this. Oh, I'm on this diet. Oh, I hate my body here. Oh, I couldn't wear the bathing suit at this, this get together. And it's almost like ingrained that that's how we bond, like talking about the weather. We're all in this club of diet culture. Um, so I wanna talk about how, oops, sorry. Diets don't work. The, the, the studies show 95% of dieters are going to regain the weight or more weight within one to five years. Um, women who are quote unquote overweight have less than a 1% chance of getting to a quote unquote normal weight. And then our body goes into survival mode when we're, when we're restricting and the body thinks it's a famine. So it slows down metabolism to preserve energy or calories. And then the weight loss turns into this weight cycling of losing, gaining, gaining more, losing, gaining, losing, gaining, gaining more. And it's just continually perpetuated. Um, and that diet is far more often co correlated with anxiety and depression than it actually is with weight loss. And it's an emotional roller coaster. I, I hate seeing 
side-by-side pictures that someone posts on wherever. And then you see all these people commenting and praising and you look amazing and da 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 and going on and on. And all I can think of is the person in the other side of the photo that is hearing all of that. You know, that now they have to keep this body to keep those compliments and, and the comparison that happens within when any of us have lost weight and someone comments and it's like, okay, now I need to keep this because I didn't get these comments before. Um, so it's definitely, um, and we'll, we'll talk more about this later in terms of what we can do moving forward. Um, but definitely, like I said, an emotional roller coaster. Um, and that dieting typically leads to more of a restrict overeat or binge cycle than this long-term diet. And then the BMI is BS, which we're going to get into right now. Um, it's, I don't know how many of you have, are familiar with the BMI, but I'm going to talk a little bit about it. So it's the BMI stands for the body mass index. Um, a lot of this information and the photograph that I adapted is from unapologetic eating, which is by Alyssa Rumsey. So definitely took that from her. Um, but BMI is basically how doctors now, and, um, I think, um, fitness industry as well, kind of categories if, if people are healthy or if someone is in the quote unquote overweight or quote unquote obese category, they're automatically told to lose weight. And it's just a dividing someone's weight by their height without taking into account any other characteristics, any other factors. Um, and it was originally um, invented by a Belgian astronomer and statistician um, who was not studying health at all. He wanted to study um, the characteristics of a quote unquote normal man and white men. And so that's really important to, to remember. And then, you know, several years pass, it's the early 1900s. People in America are starting to ask their doctors about losing weight and how to lose weight. Um, and at the same time, life insurance companies are starting to note higher death rates for people. And by people, I mean wealthy white men and correlating being overweight to a higher death rate. Um, to, and these are the tools, the tables that they were using. Um, so then fast forward a couple more years, we get to 1972 um, and a researcher, Ansel Keys was like, hey, let's find a new, better um, way to do this height weight comparison and um, kind of reflected back on the astronomer I mentioned tool and decided to call it the body mass index and that it would be then used to study and link health, disease and quote unquote obesity. Um, and that's the measure that we're using today. So there are many, many problems um, in, and we'll just go over a couple of them, but the differences between these categories you see here are random. So a few decades ago, for example, the normal category, the cutoff was lowered in response to a report, but that report was funded by pharmaceutical companies who make weight loss drugs. So obviously, the more people they can categorize in the overweight and obese category, the more people they can sell their weight loss pills to. Um, so overnight, millions of people went to bed normal weight, woke up in the overweight category. BMI assumes we know someone's behaviors and health status 
based purely on their body size. But there's so much variability, like age, ethnicity, body composition, social factors. And those are pieces that are huge impact on, on health outcomes. Um, and so look at this, and I'm gonna go through a couple of studies about why this is just not a good indicator of health status, but there was a large scale study. So that's 40,000 people um, that was done a couple, several years ago, found that nearly half of the people classified in the overweight category and one third of people classified in the obese category are actually metabolically healthy, meaning they have normal labs, such as like blood pressure, cholesterol, blood sugar, indicating good overall health. And then also nearly one third of the people in the normal weight BMI category were found to be metabolically unhealthy based on labs. There's not one disease that only affects people at higher weights. People of all shapes and sizes are affected by all of these health conditions. It's only people at higher weights who have these diseases blamed on their body sizes. Um, and then in terms of groups of people, we see the highest death risk among those people that are in the under BMI category. Um, and then the lowest risk of death is the people in the overweight category. Um, and then in addition, the people with BMIs in the obese range have the same risk of death as those with normal BMIs. The other piece here is that those with the obese BMIs living with type two diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, um, kidney disease, lived longer than thinner folks with these same diseases. Overweight is a word that assumes that there's a correct weight, that a body should be. And that if you're over that weight, then you're abnormal or different. The word overweight is rooted in the BMI charts, which we just learned are very, very flawed. And then lastly, the word obese comes from the Latin word obesis, meaning having eaten until fat. This term assigns illness based on size, not on any other parameter, and it places so much blame on the visual and it's stigmatizing. It can cause stress, anxiety, shame. And so we'll talk in a bit about words to use. I never use the word overweight and obese. I'm only using it on this slide because those are the actual names of the BMI categories. So I wanted it to be clear what I was talking about in referencing the slide. Um, so I want to talk about health at every size. So when I was introducing myself, I mentioned that I'm a health at every size practitioner. Um, and so health at every size or haze, as it's referred to, um, it recognizes that health is more than just the absence of disease. Health exists on a continuum that varies throughout our entire lifespan. So in this model, health, we're taking a holistic perspective. So that's physical, psychological, relational, spiritual. The haze approach dissuades use of judgment of others regarding their health status. So that's acknowledging that shame and oppression can have a significant impact on one's health and wellness. All right, so the principles of Hayes, help at every side, um, weight inclusivity, so celebrating body diversity, uh, rejecting the patho pathologizing of specific weights. Health enhancement, so supporting health policies as well that improve and equalize access to information 
and services uh, and personal practices that improve human well-being. And those practices can be physical, economic, social, spiritual, emotional. Eating for well-being. So promoting flexible, individualized eating based on hunger and fullness, nutritional needs, and pleasure. Respectful care. So acknowledging our own biases as providers, as any provider, um, and providing information and care from an understanding of race, gender, socioeconomic status, age, sexual orientation, and any other intersectionality that can impact weight stigma. Um, and then lastly, life-enhancing movement. So supporting full activities that allow people of all sizes, all abilities, all interests to engage in movement that they find enjoyable to the degree that they would like to participate in it. All right, so I wanna talk a bit, um, Reagan Chastain, all of the, the, these two cards that I have here are from her and the next couple things that I'll explain, but she is an amazing speaker, writer, activist. I was lucky enough to see her as a keynote speaker uh, several years ago um, when she was training for an Ironman. She's, she's absolutely amazing. Um, but she created these cards. So I think I'm giving you all of this information. It's like, okay, well, but then how do I actually talk to my doctor about this? Or how do I promote this, this new way of considering health after all of these research studies? Um, so she created these cards, one of which the patient can read from and one of which you can hand write to your doctor. Um, and starting the conversation, and this is, this is quoting her, what she recommends. I feel like I've been having trouble getting my healthcare values across to you. I brought in this card to help us have a dialogue. So I wanna talk a little bit about the struggles that people in larger bodies face when going to the doctors to highlight even more stigma associated with body size. Um, so let's say two, two patients go in to see their doctor. One is in a small size body, one is in a larger body. They are both diagnosed with high blood pressure. The person in the thinner body goes to the doctor, gets recommendations for interve interventions that are evidence-based. They're given you know, whatever that is, whether that's medication or whatnot. And then when they come back for a checkup, they test their blood pressure to see if those interventions are working. For the person in the larger body, they get a very different conversation. They're told to lose weight and then they're weighed as a way of measuring progress for high blood pressure, which doesn't make sense. Um, so again, with the evidence-based piece, we really wanna make sure that doctors are using evidence-based practices. Um, so we, we have the evidence that shows that Weight loss, like we said, 95% of people or whatever I quoted earlier, aren't able to lose weight or gain it back. So if a doctor's recommending weight loss, and let's say they truly believe that that is the cure to high blood pressure, they're recommending a practice where 95% of people gain the weight back or more, which then wouldn't make sense if they think that that's how you treat high blood pressure. Um, and then the diagnostic criteria is really important. So they can test a patient's blood pressure and give interventions for that. Um, it doesn't make sense to prescribe another, me another measure that you wouldn't prescribe to everyone with the same disease we're talking about, in this case, high blood pressure. Um, and the last piece is informed consent. So with any other procedure, you're gonna get the risks and benefits. Like if you're, whether 
you have cancer and you're getting a, you know, a new treatment or whether you're going to the dentist, they're going to tell you, this is the amount of pain you're going to feel. This is how often this works. This is how often, you know, this is what I recommend under these circumstances. If this isn't in your budget, your beliefs, this, whatever it might be, these are your other options. But our doctors talking to patients and saying, hey, I would like to see you lose weight. There's a 95% chance you gain it all back or more. There's about a 1% chance that this or that happens. There's a bet. Those conversations I've never heard of. Yet they're doing it for these other interventions. Um, I think, you know, as I said, I'm a therapist. I, I, I work with a client who was going in for, for tonsillitis and was like, okay, and I prepared myself beforehand to remember to tell them when they talk about my weight that I'm training for a half marathon this year and I'm doing this, this, and this. And it's like, this patient is going in for her tonsils and she feels like she has to have all of this evidence to show and to ask for a health at every size approach from her doctor. All right. So let's talk a bit about stigma body size and fat phobia. Uh, so a lot of information comes from Virgie Tavar. She's an amazing author and activist. I recommend you read every single thing she creates and listen to every single podcast she goes on because she's phenomenal. Um, but it's about fat phobia. So her explanation is that fat phobia is people in larger bodies are inferior. And if society stigmatizes them enough, they will change. That our society has made it culturally acceptable to shame people in larger bodies. It's, fat, it's systemic and it's structural and it's enforced by multiple systems. If you think about like the study I mentioned where they're like funding studies from, from pharmaceutical companies or even the unquote war on obesity, like our government, it costs more to get health insurance or life insurance, excuse me. Um, they ask about your BMI and your body weight and your height on those things. So these are all these different systems that are impacted by fat phobia. Um, fat phobia is that the worst thing someone can be is a fat person. That weight loss at any cost, no matter how detrimental to their health and mental health is always worth it. The cost is always positive. That things will be better if you're a thinner person. And anything that you can do to, to not be in a larger body, you should be doing. It targets and scapegoats people in larger bodies, but ends up hurting all people. So we are all living and experiencing fat phobic bigotry or living in fear of it. So it's, it's that people in larger bodies are living in fear and, and shame and these stigmas and people in, excuse me, smaller bodies are living in fear of gaining any kind of weight because then they're going to be subject to that same shame and, and stigma and mistreatment. And then another place where this shows up, so we kind of reflect back on, on um, doctor's visits, is that if doctors are automatically assuming that someone in a larger body needs labs run and automatically assuming that people in, in, in straight sized bodies do not need labs run. They're missing so much. They're wasting resources on people who are healthy that don't need the labs run. 
And then they're missing diagnoses, potentially significant, dangerous ones, just because someone is in a straight sized body that's sitting in front of them. People in larger bodies, as we're talking, are refused proper medical care. That's a human right, proper medical care. Um, and then we'll get into more of, of like thin privilege stuff in a bit, but it also shows that people are paid less. Quote unquote plus size women make $9,000 less annually than their straight size counterparts. And that now we're just talking about body size. Now go into how women make less than men. Black women make less than white women. Latino women make less than white women. And then if they're in a larger body, like how much of this salary is now adding up um, in this discriminating way? Um, all right, so let's talk about language that we can use in a positive way and things that we can do to make a difference. Um, so if you've noticed, I use the term larger body or straight size body <clears throat> to compare people. Um, there are a lot of people in the movement, activists that are taking back the word fat and using it in place of overweight and obese. But as with any of those terms, it is up to that person how they refer to themselves. And you know, me sitting here in a straight size body, knowing if that is just okay for them to call themselves or if it's also okay for me to use that word when speaking with them. And I think that's around knowing knowing who you're close to and who, like if you're in an audience where you do not know is using the term larger or straight size body. But the overweight obese words really medicalize and pathologize larger bodies. Um, and that there isn't necessarily consensus within the movement. So it's really just honoring what people around you taking in those context clues. Um, and then how you can make a difference, um, this list that Bergie put together. So stop moralizing food, good food, bad food, unhealthy food, healthy food. I hear this so much and I, I hear adults, I hear this in children. No, I'd rather you have a, a healthy snack before dinner. What are we actually saying? Let's talk about it in terms of nutrient dense or filling foods. So if that, if you're, if you're talking to your child, they're like, no, like we're not going to be around food for a while. So we actually, we need something that's going to be filling or we don't want something super filling dinners in however many, like honoring hunger fullness cues about like, how hungry are you? How much of a snack do you, do you, does your body feel like it needs right now? Um, in multiple studies, the biggest trigger is in the workplace. So it's always the, how are you eating that? Oh, I could never eat that. This is the diet I'm on. I can't have the birthday cake or what's in that. Um, happens all the time. I, I have this memory of being at work. And if you've worked with me, you know, I love peanut butter. I will be the one carrying it to the, to the, <laughs> to the meeting room with a spoon in it because I, it's just, there's nothing wrong with it, with peanut butter. It's so amazing. And I've had someone pick up the, the jar and go, oh gosh, you know how much sugar is in this one? What? I did not ask you. This peanut butter is amazing. But again, unsolicited, just coming at you. Um, so stop talking about your diet. Stop commenting on people's bodies. So not praising weight loss. And start visualizing the possibility of a different future. Um, and so I, I use this example. It's not a perfect example, but it's an example of how we can phase out the way 
we look at things or the way we talk about things. So if you think about how smoking cigarettes was in 40 years ago, even 20 years ago, right? I watched Mindhunter on Netflix and they're smoking on the plane. And I cannot even imagine being in a tiny little space where people are, are smoking on a plane. Anyways, but even, you know, being a waitress, all these things are smoking section this. And now our entire culture has shifted around that. And I, I highly doubt if you would talk to someone in the 70s, they would have said, oh yeah, I can imagine you're not even allowed to smoke outside in certain places anymore. Now I'm not comparing being in larger bodies to smoking. I am comparing diet culture to smoking culture and believing that we can make a difference if we all try, if we all shift language, if we're all doing what we can, I think we can get to that. Um, so I wanna talk about fat phobia and racism. I highly recommend reading Sabrina Strings Fearing the Black Body. Um, but it was, how, where did this come from? This fat phobia, this differentiating. And it came from the colonizers. They had to have some way to differentiate themselves from the quote unquote savages. They had to say, let's put restrictions on pleasure. Let's put restrictions on weight and food and any of these things to justify the killing and enslaving of them. And then eventually dieting became a way for BIPOC people to participate in, in whiteness, in something that Americans valued as a fit in. Like we talked about before, you know, bonding over this thing. And then to take that a step further, Deshaun Harris, who is an amazing author, um, just published Belly of the Beast, the politics of anti-fatness as anti-blackness. Um, and they make these, amazing points, amazing and disturbing points that many of the black men that we see murdered by police were larger people. One reason, and this gets me every time, but one reason police were exonerated in the Eric Garner case was because the, new, the NYPD union lawyer argued that Mr. Garner died of obesity related cardiac arrest. Basically saying if he had been in a smaller body, a healthier, quote unquote, healthier body, he would have survived a choking maneuver. We see this time and time again. We see this with George Floyd. He was a very tall man. We hear people say, oh, there, a voice is so loud or this or that, that largeness is equated with this. Tamir Rice, well, we didn't know he was a child. He's too, he was too large to have been a child. That's why we took the actions we took. And again, we're seeing this horrific, disturbing connection between racism, white supremacy, and fat phobia. So getting into a bit more about thin privilege, kind of coming off of that. So Christy Harrison, again, um, explains that thin privilege is like any other kind of privilege. It just means that by being below a certain size, you have greater access to resources and face less discrimination in society than people without that specific characteristic. So having thin privilege doesn't mean that you've never had any body image issues. It doesn't mean that you've never struggled with disordered eating or that you haven't been bullied or shamed for your size. You can have thin privilege and also hate your body. It doesn't even mean that you feel thin. 
And I would argue that, and quoting from her, that the majority of people in diet culture never feel thin because of the pressure that it, that it enforces. Um, so there's a list of 22 um, examples of thin privilege that I have um, linked here, but I just included the top like 10. Um, so, so when you're at the grocery store, people don't comment food selection in your cart in the name of quote unquote, trying to be helpful. Your health insurance rates are not higher than everyone else's. You can expect to find clothing size, your clothing size, so locally. When you go to the doctor, they don't suspect diabetes or any other illnesses are weight related. You don't get told you have such a pretty or handsome face, implying that if only you lose weight, you'd be more attractive. People do not assume that you're lazy based solely on your size. You're not the brunt of jokes for countless comedians. Airlines don't charge you extra to fly. You're not perceived as looking sloppy or unprofessional at your size. And friends don't describe you to others using qualifiers. He's kind of heavy, but really nice though. Again, there's 12 more um, on there if, if you wanna see the full list. Um, but like we said before, people who have the higher BMI they make less money than people in, in smaller bodies and get promoted less frequently than people in smaller bodies. The average American woman is a size 14 and 67% of American, American women wear a size 14 or above, but retail clothing stores don't carry anything larger than a 12. Well, that doesn't make sense. Fat jokes are considered socially acceptable. Kids are routinely shamed and bullied by other children as well as teachers, as well as family members, as well as doctors telling people to put children on diets. People automatically assume that someone in a larger body doesn't eat healthier exercise. And that is considered this kindness to, to comment on weight loss. So breaking the stigmas. So again, just shifting towards the language we speak. Um, another amazing book, and I'm, I'm using this analogy um, that uh, Sonia Renee Taylor uses in her book, The Body is Not an Apology, that learning to speak not using diet culture um, is like learning to speak a new language. So it's hard, and, it's, and there's challenges, and it's doable, and we can be patient with ourselves while we do it. So like, if I was, let's say I really wanted to learn how to speak French, I would learn it first, just a few words at a time. Maybe I'd put sticky notes so I knew what table was and laptop was, and then I'd, I'd try to, to get it. And, I'd, and then I'd practice it with some people that I felt comfortable with that wouldn't judge me for not speaking French really well. They understood I was learning it. But then eventually I noticed I'm thinking in French. I'm not translating anymore. I'm dreaming in French. I'm not, you know, all, my whole life has become this new language. And that I know that when I go home, and I talk to people in English, that might flip back again. But that doesn't mean I forgot how to speak French. And it doesn't mean I'm not speaking it anymore. It just seems maybe my dreams turned over. And so then I notice. So the more we practice, the more fluent we're going to get at this new language that we're all going to learn how to speak. Um, and then things that you can do today. So stop commenting on people's weight and body size. Stop complimenting and praising weight loss. Stop posting side by side before and after pics or Insta versus reality pics. 
Stop posting screenshots of workouts that includes calorie burned. Because what is that saying? And how is that taken by other people in comparisons and such? You can still be proud of a run or still be proud of something you did physically without that part of it. Start noticing where you may have privilege and use it to advocate for others. Start complimenting people on treats that don't include body size. Start declining to be weighted at doctor's appointments. Even, I, I say this so much, even if you don't care if you get weighed, by changing it up, you're helping someone who wants the doctors or nurses to ask differently. I coach my clients all the time. It's okay. You can ask them not to show you. You can ask to get on backwards. You can tell them you're in eating disorder treatment. Um, you know, if you're going in for something and they don't need that, like they're not literally needing it to formulate a prescription medication for your weight. So if we all started doing that more, then people that really needed that support would do it. And I, how many times I've had someone advocate them for themselves, say they don't want to see their weight, and then they're handed their checkout paper to go down and get a lab or their checkout paper to go pay, and there's their weight on top of that paper. Um, start changing your language, start redirecting weight-focused questions. My favorite, when people are like, did you gain weight, did you lose weight, is to say, my weight is the least interesting thing about me. I have been doing this, this, or this. Um, and just start calling other people into the conversation about weight stigma, about fat phobia, about the origins of it. Um, okay. And then for anybody with private practices, I don't know how many, like, people versus um, clinicians we have, but assessments, start asking about relationships with food. How many times do we not ask or skip over that when so many people we're working with have a tough relationship with food? Um, and then there is an eating disorder exam question, um, questionnaire, excuse me, if you want to incorporate it. Office space. I know a lot of us are virtual right now, but it's so important to keep this in mind having an office and waiting room that accommodates all sizes, even one chair. And I'm not just talking width of a chair, I'm talking not having a chair that's so close to the ground that it's hard to get out of. Space to move around. Waiting room magazines that are diverse that do not promote diet culture. And when we're doing collages with, with our patients or I'm an art therapist, so I, I always bring in that piece, but really monitoring what we're putting out there. Um, I know sometimes we're subletting and it's not our office, but how can you include something in your space that shows your inclusivity of body size and ability in the same way that at school, someone might have a rainbow, you know, triangle on a badge or something, something. You can have a sticker on your book that says, hey, health at every size, something like that. And then not practicing beyond our means. So not giving clients diet advice, exercise or nutrition advice, and examining our own biases about body size. And if we need to refer out for eating disorder support for one of our clients to do so. Um, I know that's a ton of information. Um, as you can see, I get really excited about it, uh, but I'm excited to hear about questions or um, any anything that kind of came up for anybody. I'm gonna stop sharing just so my head gets bigger. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lacey. That was very informational, but also told in a way that I feel like is 
right on point with the enthusiasm we need to to kind of shift some of the narrative and shift some of the the concepts that we're talking about today so i'm gonna open up zoom and facebook live to any questions that you have for lacy you can on facebook live feel free to to write them in the chat feature and i'll read them out loud anyone on zoom which is just my sister caitlin co-founder of the promethean project also here um caitlin if you want to ask a question go for it or if you want to type it into chat you can also do that too because i know sometimes it's hard being under the spotlight um but i, I figured i'd start first and um wanting to thank you just for someone who has struggled with um you know figuring out where where i fit into my body and things of this nature and someone who was a wrestler in high school where the dynamic in wrestling is always hitting certain weights so that you can wrestle in, in that weight class and you know i used to have a huge afro in my senior year and I shaved it off to make weight, even though it was, I wanted to grow it longer. It was more important for me to get to a certain weight or to run around the gym before school or to say no to my favorite meal because I didn't make the weight in the morning and had to do it later after school. And so, you know, so much of what you talked about today was, was hitting key moments for me. Um, I was wondering if you could talk, oh, I'm going to ask a question. Um, <laughs> It sounded like I was demanding you to talk about this, but um, so there's something that I like to call like protein culture and it's a form of, you know, body dysmorphia, but almost in a way of putting on size for, for anyone who, who wants to pack on muscle and not being strong enough or not having as well-defined muscles. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and, and how it relates to everything you presented today. Yeah. I mean, I do have to say that I'm not a dietitian or, or a nutritionist in terms of like some of that meal planning. And there are people that we, like, I have someone in treatment right now for ARFID that needs to gain weight, that is needing to hit what we call exchanges to make sure that she's getting the appropriate amount of protein, starches, fats, and those types of things to, to, to gain weight and, and, and get to a more stable place. Um, I know your question is a little bit different than that, but I, I think it really comes down to the reasons behind it and like what, like really asking yourself those questions and like, is it not feeling accepted in a smaller body? Is it, is it for fuel? Is it to fuel your muscles so they work in the way that you want them to work? Is it to, you know, I don't know. I, I think there are things I can eat before I I'm a runner that I just feel better when I'm running. If I have carbohydrates, I feel way more energized when I'm running. And so I think it's just really asking you those yourself or anybody, those questions around like, what is my motivation behind this? Does what role does diet culture play into this? And is it becoming something I'm obsessed with? Is it easy enough that it's like, Oh, I throw my electrolytes and I want to take this or that. And, and this is what I do. And I don't give it another thought. I think it's just really, really monitoring that because not all diets turn into eating disorders, but most eating disorders start with a diet. And so I think it's just really monitoring your, your thoughts around it. Awesome. 
you also touched base on what my second question was about with, um, you know, people in smaller bodies that a lot of times could also be struggling with mm-hmm. some complications and uh, you touched upon that concept too and, and how to balance yeah. that perspective. Yeah, we see that a lot in eating disorder, in eating disorder treatment. And there were studies done, I'm not going to quote them completely accurately, but there were studies done on Holocaust survivors um, and complications that came after being starved and being malnourished and then eating again. Um, And they identified something called refeeding syndrome. And so if someone does go into treatment at a certain, what we would consider BMI, um, or knowing how they've been restricting, you need to, you can't just feed them normal amounts of food. They have to have like their plate plated half of what other people to like retrain their body, how to even digest and metabolize food in a way that, that fuels and nourishes them. Um, but yeah, there's, there, I think one of the biggest fears is gaining that weight. And I think I want to be very specific that when diet, when eating disorder specialized dietitians are creating a meal plan for somebody. And when I say meal plan, this is a recovery meal plan. Most people, no matter what their body size need to gain weight. So they're going to look at your growth chart. So if somebody has always been at the 20th percentile, their goal is to get back to the 20th percentile. If someone was at the 90th percentile before their eating disorder, we don't just want to get them to this quote unquote normal weight. We want to get them back to the 90th percentile because that is where their, um, their set point is. Perfect. We have a a question from the Facebook live feed. Also kind of a statement. Um, it's from Jesse Nicholson says, hi, Lacey. Can you please post the list of books you've discussed or any additional you would recommend and make them available? Yes, I can definitely do that. And I have like a page of this spreadsheet called receipts um, so that if you ever need to quote them to your family members or friends or doctor, you have those at your disposal. Perfect. We're going to let this ruminate for a little bit to see if anyone has more questions. I do have a question specifically um, about working with younger kids and how to address this. And obviously, modeling through our own language and modeling through our own behaviors is is a great place, a great thing to do in that manner. But I'm wondering, how do you work with like a young kid who is trying to get through this or has had people talk to them about uh, Mm -hmm. being in a larger body or make some of these comments or, uh, you know, pointed it out in a way that was negative. And how do you help motivate them in the same manner of what we're talking about today? Because it's, you know, being in that school structure brings so much more grief and so much more Mm -hmm. guilt and so much more intensity to it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's so much work both with the kiddo that you're working with and with the family, which makes it so complicated. I know with most of the time treating kids, treating the whole family is, is part of it. Um, but there's so, it's so important to evaluate what the parents' food beliefs are, what their food rules are. I love helping a kid or anybody identify a food role model. So who's somebody, you know, that 
eats whatever they want when they want it. And they feel like they really honor their hunger fullness cues. And if they want a second helping of birthday cake, they support themselves in enjoying it. And if they really want a cucumbers, that's what they get. And like, how do we identify someone like that um, as part of it? And I think, I guess, depending on the kid's age, I usually work with teenagers and up, but obviously more young kids can have eating disorders as well or, or have been bullied or shamed. And I think it's it's working through that, identifying supports, identifying people in their life that that aren't going to judge them for those for those things. Um, I think one of the toughest parts of eating disorder treatment as as a provider is not um, not accidentally saying diet culture things. So we'll have clients who are not in a larger body, but that's never going to be my message to them is, but you're not, or, but you're, but you don't have to worry about that. Or, you know, that's not helpful. That's promoting diet culture. And so I always recommend staying away from that and more focusing on like what we, what we can work through, whether, because body sizes change your body set point changes and you might be in a small body. Now you might be in a larger body at another point and that might flip and change. And so it's not just how to accept your body now, but how to accept that your body's going to change throughout your entire life. Um, and kind of working through that with them. Awesome. We have a comment from Carrie Bashan, who's watching out there in Facebook live land. Carrie says, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. And it's given me quite a bit to think about. Awesome. Thank you for that. All right. I'm going to leave it open for any last questions. Anyone who has a question that they want to ask Lacey, speak now. I just want to say that I really appreciated everything you talked about tonight. And it's really interesting just talking about my own history with this stuff. But then also looking at, you know, what we can do aspect. And it was, there was that moment where like, oh shit, like I did this or I've done this before and, and really paying attention, even though having gone through some of the struggles that were mentioned today, but also realizing there are, are more things we can do to kind of shift that cultural norm and, and that focus. So I really appreciated that slide and it really was awesome to call me into it and, and make me aware of how I perpetuate some of that stuff still. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it's so systemic and it's, it's, you know, always surrounding us. It's like, we're, we're needing to always kind of readjust what we're, how we're thinking or how we're commenting and just noticing it just like we were with that patience of learning a new language and just being like, oops, I, I did that. And now, you know, I am going to try not to moving forward, but let, like, we're going to mess up because we're humans and we're learning a new thing. All right. So thank you again for what a wonderful for presentation. It, it was so, so much fun to hear you talk about this because your passion definitely shines through on it and, and the need for it. Um, I am going to ask if, if it's cool with you. I know you're going to post some of those books if you don't mind sharing, and I can actually put in the show notes of the podcast version of this, and then also in the group so that, you know, if anyone's watching later, or hasn't gotten around to it yet, there's a, a list of resources that you can pay attention to. Perfect. Yeah, I can definitely do that.
All right. Thank you so much, Lacey. Thank you. Take care, everyone.